During this season of Advent, uh, we are preparing for the arrival of King Jesus by casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. And we are preparing for his arrival, his advent, in three senses, liturgically, sacramentally, and eschatologically. Don't worry, I'm going to explain what all that means as best I can. Number one, liturgically, we are preparing for the celebration of his birth on December 25th, Christmas. We are preparing to glory in the mystery of the incarnation. That as the Nicene Creed says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Sacramentally, we are being further prepared. Hopefully there's always some preparation going on, but but further prepared to behold and receive the Lamb of God in the Holy Eucharist. We have an opportunity in Advent. Actually, we have an imperative in Advent to consider how awesome and serious a thing it is to be in the presence of Almighty God and particularly to receive the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eschatologically, eschatology is the study of last things, namely heaven, hell, death, and judgment, the four last things. We are preparing for the second coming, for Christ's personal and bodily return at the end of the age. We're preparing for the resurrection of the dead when all will have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. And it's this last sense that we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, As I mentioned in last week's sermon, Advent is as much about the second coming as it is the first. Uh, I would probably say it's primarily about the second coming. If you read the collects and the lessons, God... Through the prophets, through the apostles, through the scriptures, is calling us to repentance. Why? So that as the colleague says, we may greet with joy, as opposed to terror, the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Or, if the Lord tarries, that we would be prepared for death. But before we delve deeper into the second coming, a word about the ministry of the prophets in general and John the Baptist in particular. The gospel of Mark, often called the fast-paced gospel, there's no infancy narrative in Mark. It just gets right into the action with the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark writes, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, this is interesting because uh, Mark writes, uh, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, but then he immediately quotes uh, Malachi chapter three, verse one. The quotation that he gives is actually an amalgam 
of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1. Now, did, uh, did Mark make a mistake? Well, well, no. What he's doing, I think, and this is a common practice, where writers of the New Testament, and you'll see this especially in the church fathers, where they draw different texts together uh, as, as being a unit. What Mark is doing, I think, is that he's, he's drawing on the breadth of the, of the prophetic writings, and he's pointing it all to Jesus through John the Baptist. So he, Isaiah, if you just see how our, our books are organized in the Bible, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah. And then he quotes Malachi. Malachi is the last, canonically and chrono- chronologically, of the minor prophets. So, so he, he draws on the breadth of the entire prophetic tradition, and he, in, he then introduces John the Baptist, not as just the one that these passages speak of as that voice crying in the wilderness, but also as uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem pointed out, that John the Baptist is the crown of the whole prophetic tradition. That he summarizes the ministry of the prophets and he also acts as this hinge between the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thus John in the spirit of Elijah, because it was prophesied that Elijah would return immediately before the Messiah came. And John comes as our Lord said in the spirit of Elijah and he sums up the prophetic ministry of all those who came before him and shows that it all points to Jesus. And the cry of the prophets, the cry of John the Baptist, their call to repentance, we have to understand this. It's real. But what's the goal of it? The call to repentance is not unto condemnation, but rather salvation. Isaiah 40, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. The call to repentance is rooted in the justice of God, yes, but also in his love and mercy. And those two things are not opposed to one another. It's not merciful. It wouldn't be merciful of God to just give us mercy. It's been said that God rules the universe with two hands, justice and mercy. Imagine if in your family, all you gave your kids was mercy. You, You only think of it this way with our children Sometimes the way we interact with them is that we love them for who they are, mercy. But sometimes true love that has justice is that we love them for what they can and should be. Of of trying to cultivate kindness and respect and and work ethic and those things. You you love them enough that you don't want to just, well, okay, here's a brand new car. You crash it. Okay, here's, here's one the next weekend. Instead of trying to teach them something. So God, but God's call to repentance and his sense for justice is not, does not have as its goal retribution, but redemption. 
If God's goal was retribution, then why the cross? Listen again to the collect. Merciful God, who sent thy messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for what? Our salvation. God sends the prophets to preach judgment in order that his people might avoid it. Again, if God's goal was retribution, then why the cross? If God hated us, he wouldn't have to do anything. He wouldn't have to intervene. He need not speak. He need not act. He could simply leave us alone to our own desires and devices. He could leave us on the broad road which leads to destruction. Because the wages of sin is what? It's death. The call to repentance is a call unto life. If, if your kid is about to touch the stovetop, which mine have, but if they're about to do it again, I yell at them. I might even hit them, hit their hand away. Do I do that because I'm malevolent? Or is something else motivating that action? If, if you were to see someone driving the wrong way on a one-way street headed towards a semi-truck and you start laying on your horn, you roll down your window and you start screaming at the top of your lungs. Why are you doing that? What would be the motivation? Would it be apathy? No, it would be out of care and concern, love. And John the Baptist I told Jonathan before service, he's sort of the the unofficial uh, patron saint of Advent. But what he is doing is that he's crying out to us, stop, turn around, get off the road that leads to destruction and get on the road that leads to life. So it is on account of the love and mercy and goodness of God that he calls us to repentance. And it is on account of the same that Christ tarries in heaven and has not yet returned. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a great book to read during Advent and Christmas time by C.S. Lewis. Uh, If you know the story, four siblings make their way into the enchanted world of Narnia. Lucy, the youngest, is the first to enter uh, this magical realm. Uh, While playing a game of hide and seek, she hides uh, in this wardrobe, which unbeknownst to her was a gateway to Narnia. Upon her arrival there, she finds Narnia in a state of perpetual winter. Lucy makes a friend, Mr. Tumnus, half man, uh, half goat, who tells her, Uh, It is winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long. He later explains that this was the doing of the white witch, that it's she that makes it always winter, always winter and never Christmas. Narnia is in disarray under the illegitimate rule of the white witch, whom is the Satan figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. The Narnians suffering a long winter are waiting for Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure, to arrive and act. We, 
the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, as the Narnians call us. I love that. We're waiting too. We are waiting for Christ our King to arrive and act, to end this winter once and for all of sin and death, to vanquish Satan and to usher in the springtime of new creation. And perhaps we feel a little bit like Mr. Tumnus, that it's always winter and never Christmas. We cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? It's been 2,000 years. Perhaps in our hearts, we've started to listen to the voice of the scoffer. Like those that the apostle Peter mentions who say, where is the promise of his coming? But the delay of the second coming is not on account of God's lack of activity in the world. It's not on account of divine wrath or divine apathy or ineptitude, but on account of God's mercy, patience, and love. Today's epistle, 2 Peter 3. Do not ignore this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness. Listen to this. But is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 2,000 years is a long time. Yes, especially to us. But the doctrine of the second coming should not be a source of uh, embarrassment or discouragement for the church because we know the reason for the delay, which is God's patience. And as Peter points out, uh, from God's perspective, it hasn't been a long time at all. A day is as a thousand years. And as an aside, it's worth pointing out, we are not experiencing heretofore an irregular interval with respect to the program of redemption. Meaning we haven't waited longer than God's people have waited in other eras is my point. It was nearly 2,000 years, you know, round up 17, 1800 years from the time that Abraham received the promise that through your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Nearly 2,000 years from the time he received that promise till it was fulfilled with the birth of Jesus. And it was many more thousands of years uh, between the time that God preached the first gospel to Eve in the garden from that time to the time of Christ. So the amount of time we have waited is not atypical. Moreover, we're not deist. We're not saying that God was active this one time 2,000 years ago, and we'll hope that he'll be active again. He's off on a long journey. He's wound the universe up like a clock, and good luck, guys. God is active, utterly active, between the advents. There were many redemptive events, many apocalyptic events, eschatological events, which took place between Adam and Abraham and Abraham and Christ. And the same is true of the time uh, between the first coming and the second coming. God has done so much and continues to do so much in and through the church and in the world. Miraculous things, revelatory things. 
So yes, we wait, but we do not wait in inactivity, and we do not wait in austerity. We do not wait in isolation on earth, cut off from the life of heaven. What does our Lord say? To the church now, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Thus, while the church, the new Israel, is wandering in the wilderness, awaiting her entrance into the promised land, she is led and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And she is sustained. And not just sustained, but the church feast upon the bread from heaven, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. The prophets often uh, speak of the eschaton, the last day, the day of the Lord, as a great and terrible day. Now, it will be the, the latter for those who side with the enemies of God, namely sin, death, and Satan. But it will be great and wonderful for the redeemed. Thus, it is a day we must, uh, again, not to be a broken record, but we must prepare for it by removing any hindrance to the work of the Spirit in our hearts and lives. Casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. Resisting the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible also says, draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. We cast off those things which would hinder the voice of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But then we draw near to Christ in in Scripture, in prayer, in the sacramental life of the church, in fellowship with one another. Not just friendships, which are important, but fellowship one one with another, that we're spurring one another onto good works. The power that there is, is if you want to grow in a particular life uh, area in your life, to ask a brother or to ask a sister in Christ to, to pray for you and, and to hold you accountable. Fellowship one, one with one another, that we're mutually encouraging one another's faith. And again, this, this call to prepare This this call to cast off and put on flows from the love of God who desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God's delay of that day, that day which is the hope of the redeemed, flows from the same, the love of God. We do not know when the Lord will return. Some people have thought, that they knew, they bought billboards and put the date up, but we do not know. But we can be sure that he will return. It's our hope. It's part and parcel of the deposit of faith. We confess as Christians that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But if he tarries, we do not know 
when we will die, but we can be assured that we will. 100% death rate as far as, far as I know from what I've read and researched. We know that we will die and after that the judgment, that we will have to give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. So in the words of St. Peter, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? There's a remarkable word, phrase, in Peter's question. He says, waiting for and hastening the day of God. Hastening the day of God. The implication seems to be that the faithfulness and fruitfulness of the church can hasten the day of the Lord. That it would happen sooner than if we're faithless. Because God God tarries because he's patient and it's, it's often on account of our faithlessness. So brothers and sisters, let us follow the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way May we lead lives of of holiness and godliness so that we may greet with joy the Lord's coming and through our faithfulness, by the grace of God, even hasten it. May all we think, all we say, all we do, the whole of who we are as individuals and the whole of who we are as the bride of Christ, cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.